This morning's scripture reading will come from Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I want to begin this morning with the underlying premise of this entire lesson. And the premise is simply this. The church is not the building that the people meet in. The church is the people. I think we all understand that at some fundamental level. I know that when I was growing up, my parents took meticulous care to make sure that us kids understood the difference. That we're not going to church in the sense that we're going down to where the building is. They would oftentimes, in fact, use those kinds of terms to help us to appreciate that. They would refer to the church building or Here's one I grew up with. I don't. How about you? The meeting house. Sometimes it was referred to as the meeting house. But that helped to impress upon me as a child that, again, the church is not comprised of bricks and blocks, mortar and uh, two-by-fours. It's comprised of, of organisms, of God's people. And, and that really is the premise upon which we're basing this study this morning. Now, with that in mind, or maybe, as one person has happily said, the church is what you have left when the building burns down. That's a good, that's a good way to look at it. And uh, this morning, I want to ask some questions in light of our understanding from Scripture of what the church really is. And that is simply, how do you view the church? What's your concept of the church? Where did it come from? Why does it exist? That's all a different way of saying what is the purpose of the kingdom of Christ here on earth. Because if we don't have a clear-cut concept of what we need to be doing on a daily basis as God's spiritual kingdom, then we're going to be basically a long fly ball in a high wind. You know what I'm talking about. We, We won't understand what it is that God wants us to do with our lives while we're on the face of this planet. So there are a lot of concepts and views of what the church is, what it's to be for, and your view And this is really the breaking point. Your view will determine your relationship with the church. If you look at the church as a place where I can be served, then that's going to make a difference in your Christian service. If you understand that the church is a place where you can find a place to serve others, then that's going to make a universe of difference in the outcome and the spiritual productivity of your life. Let me talk first of all, if I may, in kind of a general term about the need for some clear objectives. Because in a previous lesson, we we talked about the fact that there is no worthwhile activity unless we have clear objectives. Unless we know where we're going, how will we ever know when we get there? We need to we need to have a known purpose, some idea of what we're here for and, and where it is, especially that God would have us to go. We can't get anywhere unless we know where we're going. I read William Barclay, the famous commentator, who said there are two great days in a person's life. One is the day we were born. The other is the day we found out why. And I believe that's really true. Why are we here? What is it that God would have us as his people to be doing? You know, when we decide to take a trip, we don't just generally get in the car and go driving wherever. People say you're going on vacation, you're going on a trip, and usually the first question they ask is where are you going or where did you go? 
And so we don't get in the car and we just start driving off in any direction. We began by having a clearly defined destination. And then we can chart a specific course that will get us there. Or at least we can punch that in to the GPS. Or said another way, at the each end of a basketball court is a goal. Now some of you may want to be taking notes on this. But, but there's a goal. This is b- basketball 101. There's a goal at each end of the court. Suppose that somebody sneaked into the game, into the gym before the big game, and they, and they stole the goals. The theft isn't discovered before, until just before game time. And there isn't enough time to get new ones, and so they decide they're going to play the game without, without goals. I know that's really stupid, but hang with me for the sake of this illustration. No matter how skilled the play, no matter how much dexterity in, in ball handling, ball control, and, and how much discipline has gone into the practices, the game is going to always end tied zero to zero. It doesn't make any sense at all to play a basketball game if you don't have a goal at each end. And it makes even less sense to, to live a life or to have a church without clearly defined objectives. We've got to look at the owner's manual and see what it is that God would have the university church to be doing. Too many folks set nothing as their goal, and then they hit it with remarkable accuracy. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, If your eye is single, the whole body is full of light. James also said in chapter 1, verse 8 of his book, A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. I believe both of those carry the same central message And that is that we need to have single-mindedness of purpose. We need to know where we're going individually as God's people and also collectively, corporately as God's church. Because if we don't know where we're going, we don't know where it is that God would have us to go and what we need to be doing, then again, we're going to be basically wandering in the darkness of this world. Now, activities need to be focused on that goal that we have set for ourselves. Once a clear goal is established, then we need to focus the activities in that direction. Otherwise, we're not setting goals. We're just making wishes. I remind you, as I often do when we're talking about matters of positive mental attitude, that uh, goals are, are daydreams that are being acted upon. Some people think that they've got goals when all they really have are just daydreams. You know, I wish I were rich or I were, wish I were handsome or I wish I were athletically gifted or whatever. Those are daydreams. Goals are daydreams that are being acted upon. They're tangible. You can actually do something about them. And that's also an understanding that we need to have in the kingdom of Christ. I think we've all been in in meetings where a decision was made about a particular matter. And however, the problem was that no one was really assigned to follow up on actuating that decision that was made. No specific steps were taken to accomplish what was outlined. And unsurprisingly, nothing ever gets done about that issue, despite the fact that uh, an affirmative decision was made. You've got to actually take the idea, the goal, the objective, and say, now here, one, two, three, is what we're going to do about it. Let me ask it this way. When is a hospital not a hospital? Suppose that in your community they've constructed a brand new hospital. And you know that the goal of any hospital is to make sick people well, or at least to get them pointed in that direction. So you go and you visit that new hospital, you take your own kind of informal tour, and there's some nice parking places out near the entrance. You soon realize, because of the signage, that those are 
are dedicated to doctors and other staff members. But So you have to search for a parking space farther away. But that's pretty normal and you don't think a great deal about it. Then you enter and you see the nurses scurrying about with charts in hand. You see the doctors with their stethoscopes looking serious. You see patients that are lying in clean beds. And so far everything looks copacetic. I mean, there's nothing unusual at all about any of that. You smell that antiseptic aroma that's unique to hospitals, which I think they, they, they spray around just to scare people. That's just my personal opinion. But still, everything is pretty much normal. But then you discover that 95% of the people who enter that hospital die within 48 hours. Let me ask you a silly question. How would you feel about being a patient in that hospital? You see, no matter how it looks, how it smells, no matter what the sign says out front, if it doesn't make sick people well, then it's not doing its job. It is a failure as a medical center. That alone is its goal and everything else that it might do is secondary in importance. Suppose again that in your community they construct a new mall. A merchant rents a space. His plan is to sell shoes. And he wants to sell shoes to make a profit. That's at least the idea with the free enterprise system. And so during the grand opening, he decides that one of the ways he's going to attract people into a store is by giving away balloons to the children. And if the children come in, then we'll sew with their parents. And he plans that that to be a, a good icebreaker and a way to get people in his store. The first day, he gives away 200 balloons, but he sells no shoes. He begins to focus on the giving away of balloons. And before long, he's broken his all-time record. He has given away over 500 balloons in one business day. But still, he sells no shoes. Is he a success or a failure? And I know that you know the answer to that question. He is not accomplishing what he went into business for. He's not selling any shoes. Is there anything wrong with him giving away balloons? Absolutely not. But that's not his goal. That's not even his purpose. I'm telling us this morning that if we succeed at a hundred other things and even good things and we fail to meet our goal as the people of God, then we have failed as a people. So let's return to the question that I asked at the beginning of this study, and that is, what is the goal of the church? What is its purpose? Why, why does it exist? And please understand that our view of its purpose is vitally important. Jesus established the church for a purpose. Now, now I realize that most of you here already know all of this. And I'm relying upon 1 Peter, where Peter said over and over again, as a minister of the gospel, you need to put people in remembrance of these things. So Peter is telling us as Christians, and especially those of us who preach, that our basic responsibility is to stand in a pulpit like this and say, let's review. It's not necessarily to always tell you something that's new, that, that you don't already know, but to go back and repeat and to review those things, to, to reaffirm them in our hearts and in our lives. And that's what we're doing this morning. Jesus established his kingdom, his spiritual kingdom, the church, for a reason. And we need to look at him to tell us what that reason, what that purpose is. The church is to fulfill the will of its founder and its head. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Well, what was his goal? Why did he leave heaven? Why did he do the things that he did at great personal sacrifice? Why was he willing to go to the cross and do all of those things that we commemorated as we gathered around the table this morning? Well, he tells us succinctly in Luke 19 verse 10 what his purpose statement was. He said, the Son of Man has come, watch this, to seek and save 
that which was lost. If we want to know what the head came to do, we know because he told us. He came to seek and save those who were spiritually lost. That's he, what he came to earth for. That's the task that he has left for us, at least according to the Great Commission. And that's to seek and save the lost. Now watch this carefully. Jesus did not describe his church primarily as a worshiping institution, even though that's certainly one of our functions. What we have done here this morning and coming together in this assembly to worship is a function of the church. There is no doubt about that. He described his kingdom, though, primarily as a penetrating institution. And I believe that probably requires a little bit of explanation, so hang on. He described his kingdom in one place as, as leaven. Now, that's pretty much a word that you'll find only in Scripture. We don't talk a great deal about leaven unless you happen to be really into cooking bread. But, but he described his church that way one time. It's, he said it's, it's like yeast whose basic nature is to penetrate the entire loaf of bread. And if you have a lump of dough and you put some yeast in one end of it and you leave it overnight, what happens? Well, during the night, it will quietly and steadily permeate the entire loaf. So that the next morning, you can take a pinch from any place in that loaf of bread and you'll find yeast. And Jesus said, I want you to know that that's what my church is to be doing. You can establish the church in a certain place, but it will quietly and steadily permeate that entire community if it's doing what it's supposed to do. And if you come back in a few years and you drive down any street, you'll find Christians. Because that's what the church is to be about. That is its basic nature. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost. His people are to be doing the same thing 2,000 years later. Here's another penetrating illustration that Jesus used. He not only described his church like leaven or yeast, he said it's also like light. The basic nature of light is to penetrate the darkness. Whether you're turning on the lights in your house or using a flashlight outdoors, it's the basic same concept. You're penetrating the darkness so that everything is illuminated and you can see where you're going. So the purpose of the church is to lovingly, effectively, and boldly penetrate the world by communicating the good news of the gospel about Jesus Christ to those who have not heard it. Now, as important as that, it is not the task of the church to force, coerce, or trick people into responding to the gospel message. When he gave the Great Commission, he did not say, now you've got to make people accept this message. He never said that anywhere. Its purpose is simply to communicate that message as clearly and as effectively as we possibly can in the world and in the community in which we live. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.17 said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I know that passage has been misused to leave the impression that Paul is minimizing the importance and the essential nature of baptism. That's not what he's doing at all. He's saying that that baptism is necessary, but that was not his primary purpose. Think about that in modern terms. It is not our primary purpose to get people into the baptistry. Although the Bible teaches from Pentecost forward that for a person to go to heaven to be saved from their past sins, they must be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of all of those sins. And it is in the act of baptism, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we contact his death. That's where we contact his blood that has the spiritual and eternal capacity of washing away every one of our transgressions. You can't go to heaven without being baptized is what the Bible says clearly time and time again 
especially through the book of Acts. But still having said that, it is not our primary purpose to get people into the water. Our primary purpose as God's people is to teach folks, is to try to make disciples. That is not only to see that they're baptized and to help them in that process, but also to then once they get out of the baptistry to help them to live a faithful and productive Christian life. And I think that's what Paul had in mind. He said, my mission is bigger than just getting people into the water. By the way, if our primary purpose is, can be stated by saying it's to get people into the baptistry, then we will be very prone to, as one brother has described it, dunk them and drop them. In other words, once we've got them into the baptistry, then we've accomplished our task and we don't have to worry. No, no, that's just, that's when the Christian race really begins. And that's when they need the help from God's people the most. And so Paul's statement becomes clear. The idea here is if we present the good news, the integrity of others is going to be respected. We will not manipulate them. We will not coerce them. We will not force them in any way to, to be respondent in a positive way to the message. We will encourage them to do that, but we're not going to manipulate. And they're free to accept or to reject Christ as they will. Free will must be respected if we're doing what the God would have his church to be doing. I think the classic description is that the church exists by evangelizing as fire exists by burning. And you say, well, I thought they were one in the same, and that's exactly right. You don't necessarily say fire burns because that would be redundant. Evangelizing is not what the church does because it's commanded. Evangelizing is the basic nature of God's people. That's what we're in business for, if I may use that terminology. The church can't help but tell the good news. If we know what redeemed us from our sins, we need to be willing and able and privileged, consider it a blessing, to be able to share that information with everybody that will listen. Now, I know there's some churches out there that have, have lost sight of their fundamental nature and of their basic goal. They need to go back, we need to go back and look again at the owner's manual to see the instructions about what God wants us to be doing. Is it just worshiping? Is it coming here and observing the Lord's Supper, singing these songs, praying together, and that's basically the essence and the summum bonum of Christianity? Is that, is that all that God wants us to be doing? Or is there something deeper and richer and finer in church work than just that? I think we can, we can easily, if we, if we lose sight of what the church's purpose is to be, we can constantly be tempted to get off track and to focus on lesser goals. And, to, and then to begin to convince ourselves that those lesser goals are really the purpose of the church. We're constantly tempted to do that. But if we succeed, I hope you're listening to me, church. If we succeed at a thousand things, even noble things, like having inspirational assemblies, or developing a loving fellowship among God's people, relieving the suffering, feeding the hungry, building buildings, having classes and VBSs, saving the rainforest, whatever it is that the church might be involved in, and a million and one other good things, and we fail to reach our primary goal, we have not done what we're in business for. Amen. We are not what God put us on this earth to accomplish. And in doing so, we fail our Lord, who is the one who gave us the commission. And we fail ourselves by not being what we were designed to be. And folks, if we fail, all of those who remain outside of Christ are going to suffer 
by our neglect because they will go from the cradle to the grave without ever hearing the good news of the message of Christ. And they will never have the opportunity presented to them that we had presented to us at one point in our lives, and that is the opportunity to become a New Testament Christian and to have the blood of Jesus cover our sins. So the goal, the basic nature of the church, is to communicate the saving message of Jesus to the world. That is why we exist. And everything we do then needs to contribute in some clear and definite way to achieving that overall goal. The church where we are, our lives in it, can become all that they were designed to be, or we can become satisfied with being something less. It really depends on how we choose to look at it. So let me end with one final question. Where do we fit into all of this? Keith read Romans 12, 6 through 8 a moment ago, and we're going to reference that in a moment as a key indicator as to the direction that a child of God should have in his or her life. But the Bible teaches that we are individually responsible to live before God according to the unique potential that each of us possesses. That is, we all have different gifts and abilities. The Bible teaches that over and over again, virtually every page of the New Testament. We're each to discover, develop, and deploy those special, unique abilities in kingdom service. Sometimes those inclinations and proclivities, those abilities and talents that you had out in the secular world, can now be dedicated to kingdom service. Not always, but sometimes. Those things that you do well can be now dedicated to serving God in his kingdom. So we're to discover those, we're to develop those, and then we're to deploy those as we are each servants of God in his working, active kingdom. And then we develop our personal ministry based upon the understanding and the identification of those gifts. Here's something else the Bible teaches us. Not necessarily so much explicitly, but at least it is implied. And that is really a wonderful thing. That no two of us are exactly alike. You have your unique gifts, talents, and abilities, and I happen to have mine. Things that you do well, that are natural to you, that you could easily get excited about, would be hard, unnatural, and difficult for me. Because guess what? We're different. And God has put us all with our amalgamation of gifts into his kingdom. All of us fulfilling our functions. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's like the physical body. You don't want every member of your body being an ear or an eye or a toe or whatever. All the members of your body, Paul said, have their unique special purpose and design. And and, and if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be was Paul's argument. And that just makes sense. You don't have to have a degree in physiology to understand what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. And the spiritual application, of course, is that the church of our Lord, the body of Christ, is the same way in a spiritual way. So you discover your ministry, whatever it is. And that's where Romans 12, 6 through 8 comes in. I would recommend strongly that you study that passage. There are seven talents or abilities there. And I'm just convinced that you will find your place, your talent, somewhere on that list. You may just identify one. Or there may be three or four things that you find on that list that you go, hey, I I could do that. And I'm going to determine that I'm going to develop that ability and that talent and use it to serve God. Meanwhile, I'll do the same. And remember what Paul said in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, because this really is spiritual service to the great King of Kings. Now, neither one of us should wait around expecting somebody to find a place for us. 
That's so important. I know, I know we're coming to the end, but that's so important, I'm going to repeat it. None of us, as we're trying to find our place, how we fit into the kingdom of Christ, into his church, needs to sit around waiting for someone to point us to a specific direction or to a specific job. Now, sometimes people will help us. Sometimes congregations actually have ministers of involvement that help people to be matched to their particular proclivities and talents. But even if we don't have that, each one of us has a responsibility to find our place and to do our work in the kingdom of Christ nonetheless. Because the church really is a demonstration of the age of specialization. Let me tell you what I mean by that, then we're through. Once we've discovered our gifts, we can know what good ministries to get involved in and what, God, what good ministries that we simply cannot get involved in. And that's important, too, because in any active church that understands its purpose, there are going to be, watch this carefully, more jobs than any one person could ever possibly be involved in. They're just, we're going to have to pick and choose. We cannot be involved in every ministry and every job that the university church allows or provides an opportunity for us to be involved in. And if you're trying to be involved in everything that's going on, What's going to happen is you're going to wind up frustrated because you're going to realize that you can't do all of those things and not do them well. You're going to be unnecessarily agitated and frustrated by your inability to do all of those things. And you're not going to be the best servant of the Lord that you could possibly be. You need to specialize in your area of effectiveness. I believe the Bible teaches that in principle on virtually every page. As in all things, Jesus is our perfect example. Let's look at him for just a moment. The Bible says in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he refused to get involved with even good things that would keep him from his primary task. He really did have single-mindedness of purpose. I have come, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Anything that would distract Jesus from that purpose, Jesus made sure was not on his radar screen for very long. Let me give an example of that that comes from Luke chapter 1. The Bible says in Luke chapter 1 that there was once a man who came to Jesus to, to judge a grievance that that man had with his brother. And now, there's nothing wrong in being an arbiter in such matters. In fact, that's a worthwhile and worthy thing to do. Over in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said that there needs to be people in the church that are able to make those kinds of wise decisions about matters between brothers and sisters. So that's a noble thing to do. The only problem was, Jesus said, that's, that's not what I came to do. I can't get involved in that and then do what I came to do. So what he said in Luke 1.14 in response to the man's request was, he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Jesus was not saying, I'm too good or I'm too important to do any of that. Let somebody else do the grunt work. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, I have a task that requires single-mindedness of purpose. On another occasion, the people wanted to make Jesus their king. There's nothing wrong with king business. It's certainly an honorable business. The only criticism that I would have with the king business is there just isn't much opportunity for career advancement. You know what I'm saying? You're pretty much as high as you could ever be. But that isn't what Jesus came to do. So he refused them. And the Bible record makes that clear. He specialized in seeking and saving the lost. That was his goal. And it was a goal from which he would not allow himself to ever be distracted. The apostles specialized too. The church, first church fuss that we find recorded in the Bible is in Acts 6 chapter. If you're a Bible student, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And, and I will synopsize all of that down to this conclusion. It was solved by the apostles telling the upset members to choose some men to do the tasks that they wanted done. Choose from among you seven men who have these qualifications and let them take care of these Grecian widows and their very real legitimate needs. And the apostles said in chapter 6 and verse 4, what about ourselves? He said, well, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Why? The only conclusion that I can come to is that the apostles were kind of elitists. They were snooty. And they decided, no, we're too good to do that kind of work. No, 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 no. That's not why they said that at all. They said, we've got something else that God wants us to do. You find seven men who can do that work. It is a needed work. It is a legitimate work. But that's not what God sent us to do. That's the age of specialization that I'm talking about. They specialized. They taught others to specialize, too, in their areas of strength and abilities. And along with Paul, it's so much better to say this one thing I do than to say these 40 things I dabble in. We need to specialize. We need to find our gifts and abilities and find out where we can fit in into the kingdom of Christ. And I promise you this. You have my personal guarantee that a new day will dawn in your spiritual walk. When you decide that I'm going to identify my gift and I'm going to go to work in the kingdom of Christ. So prayerfully and carefully find your special ministry. Pour your very life and your soul into it. Give it all that you have and don't worry about anything else. If, as my friend Jerry Barber likes to say, if you do what you can with what you have where you are, you can know that God will be pleased with your service. Your potential to be a great servant of God does not depend, here's the good news, it does not depend on your age. It does not depend on your economic level. It does not depend on the color of your skin, your nationality, your education, or any other thing like that. It depends entirely upon your faith in God and your willingness to be used by him. And rest assured, God wants you now just as you are. Now, you have options. You can hold back and be uninvolved and unsuccessful and blame others. I've heard that refrain in the church, but they never give me anything to do. Whoever told you that they're supposed to give you something to do. Paul says you've got to find that for yourself. We can get involved, on the other hand, and we can try to do everything, and we can be frustrated and quickly burn out. Or we can discover and develop our special gifts and then use them in those special ministries to bring honor and glory to God. But I do know this, it depends on how you look at it. And I wonder this morning, what is your view of the kingdom of Christ? And specifically, I ask you this question, are you a part of it this morning? Are you in the church of our Lord? And the Bible says in Galatians 3.27 and in other places that the way you do that, the last act, the last step in your obedience that puts you into Christ is being baptized into his blood and through his name and by his authority. This morning, have you repented of your past sins? Have you said, I can live better than that? And with the strength and the power of God, I intend to. I'm going to live better from now on. I'm sorry for the way that I've lived. Confess Jesus as God's son and be baptized to start your whole life over again while we stand.